Linda McHenry, host of The Writer's Voice, and my guest today is Alan Wire. How are you, Alan? I'm well, thank you, Linda. Uh, Alan is a writer of literary fiction, and he's going to tell us a little bit about what he does shortly. He's going to also share with us his most recent book, and we're going to talk about just a bunch of different things that just come to mind, and uh, he will end up with letting you know what he has in progress. So, Alan, why don't you tell us about some of the things you've written in the past? Okay. My first book is a novel called Blanco, which is set in a small country town in Texas of the same name. And the same day, I published a collection of stories called Things About to Disappear. I had sent the stories to a press and kept waiting to hear, and the head of the press wrote me and said, do you have a novel we could consider? And I had friends who said, if you let them have a novel, they won't do the stories. So I kept dragging my feet to hear whether they were going to do the stories. And finally, he called me and said, I've always had this idea of piggybacking two books together, a book of stories and a novel. So would you send me this novel so we can consider both of them? And the novel, once he got it, within a week, he offered me a contract for both books to be published at the same time. Good for you. This was a university press and it was back in the late 70s, 78. And I think that it's the first time a university press had published fiction by a living American writer. You know, they'd done reprints, yeah. but that yeah. was before small presses and university presses were doing so much publishing of fiction as they are now. Yeah. Then a few years later in 83, I published a novel with an editor at Simon & Schuster named Jonathan Coleman, who mm -hmm. was very kind to me. He had got to make the trip to New York where your editor takes you out to dinner yeah. and so forth. He'd only read the first few pages of the manuscript, but he offered me a contract, I think because he had liked the first novel uh, mm -hmm. that I'd published. And then he left the publishing house and I had several different editors before <laughs> in name, you know, before uh -huh. the book was, was published. Then I published a novel called A Place for Outlaws with Harper Collins. And Ted Solitoroff was my editor, the late mm -hmm. Ted Solitoroff, who is sort of legendary for the number of writers that he had gone out and found and published. Mm -hmm. And we became friends. I was teaching then at the University of Alabama, and I brought Ted to campus as for a semester as a visiting editor. And that was an opportunity to get to know him informally, you know, mm -hmm. not just as an editor. And then I made a great career move. Ted had said, we're going to publish your next several books until you develop a readership. We're not going to worry about sales. Well, I started this massive manuscript that I spent the next 12 years on. Oh, my goodness. 12 years? Just about doing research wow. and writing. It's a okay. novel called Tejano, which is the Comanche word for Texan. I was okay. born and raised in Texas and Mexico and later okay. Louisiana. And I'd always wanted really just to write a Western. But... As I got into this, the list of characters grew and, you know, research can be seductive. You learn stuff. And the history is so interesting, isn't it? And the stuff that you thought you knew, but you find you didn't and the stuff you didn't know, right? Exactly. I had, for example, imagined describing this wise old Comanche chieftain with a long feather headdress. And I went to the Barker Library in Austin, Texas, which is the <laughs> library of all things Texas. And the first thing I learned was Comanches didn't have chiefs in the sense that other tribes did. They would have a, a chief of a particular war party or they would have an orator, but no chiefs, really. Yeah. I learned that the average lifespan at the time for members of the tribe 
was maybe the mid 30s. So I yep. couldn't have a wise old chieftain. It wouldn't be very likely. But at least I thought I can describe that feather headdress. <laughs> and then I learned, no, they didn't wear feather headdresses until much later when they saw other Plains tribes wearing them and went home and made their own knockoff version. <laughs> but what they did wear, I learned, were the hollowed out heads of actual buffaloes that they put over their heads. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, as a fiction writer, I think I can live with that. Well, and you know, and I think a lot of people, when they write fiction, they think, well, because it's fiction, I can do whatever they want. But once again, if you're a reader and you know the topic, like I lived in Montana for eight years and there's seven or eight Indian reservations there. And there's a lot of different tribes. Right. And again, I know a few things. I'm not claiming to be an expert, but I learned a whole lot more about Native Americans there. And like you said, you do research and you think you know stuff and you find out, mm, no. And if you're going by what you see on TV, that's not a good thing either. Well, and this was the first time I had written a period piece. You know, I think uh -huh. the difference between an historical novel and a period piece is that in the historical novel, your characters would be known historical figures like mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln. And then you'd have to make sure you had fidelity to those facts. Right. And I didn't, I, Abraham Lincoln has mentioned his death is in the newspaper in my novel. But mm -hmm. other than those kinds of details as sort of markers of where we are in time, mm -hmm. right. all of the characters are entirely invented. Mm -hmm. But I still wanted it to be a fiction with some fidelity to the fact. And setting it in a particular time and place makes demands that if you're just writing a contemporary novel, you don't have to worry about those kinds of things. I like Oscar Wilde's definition of fiction writing as the telling of beautiful, untrue things. <laughs> yeah. I might change untrue to unfactual. Right. Because I think there's a distinction. You may achieve the truth by exaggerating or improving on the facts. I tell my wife this when she interrupts me to correct stories I'm telling that I'm exaggerating on purpose. Well, you know, Lawrence Block has a book that he wrote to help teach writers, and the title of it is Telling Lies for Fun and Profit. <laughs> so, you know, again, there's different ways to look at that. Now, why don't you tell me, and so my readers can understand, the difference between literary fiction and genre fiction and other forms of fiction? It's sort of simplistic, but I think that Literary fiction may be about what 99% of the people are doing 99% of the time, while genre fiction or entertainment fiction or commercial fiction, you know, all kinds of names for it, maybe have to do with 1% of the population 1% of the time. Mm -hmm. For example, murder and intrigue among the rich and famous in Paris. Yeah. That's not, you know. <laughs> That phrase, action-packed, that we see on book packets and movie posters all the time, is not really true to the day-to-day -day lives of very many of them. And so literary fiction may often be a story in which it doesn't seem that that much happened, but the way of saying what happens may be as important as actually what's taking place. I think all fiction has to be entertaining, though. So I've never been happy with the notion of serious fiction versus entertainment fiction, because that seems to me to imply a kind of condescension. That, and it also makes what I do sound beforehand deadly boring if it has to be called serious, you know? 
Yeah. Characters, I think, but let, let me, let me backtrack for me to read mm-hmm. something. I have to be engaged by the characters. Right. And especially these days, a lot of commercial fiction is series. So we can even emphasize what you said even more. If 1% of the population is doing something at, at, you know, at any given percentage of time, what are the chances that eight years in a row, they're going to stumble across a dead body right. or they're going to, you know, wind up doing all these fantastic kinds of things. So tell me about your process. Everybody writes things differently. Obviously you research, but do you have a particular way that you go about research? Uh, Do you have particular topics that you like to write? If you can generalize your process, because every writer I think approaches writing differently regardless of what they write. Well, I think research is as important in everything I write as it was in that one novel because it was you know, set in a particular time and place. Mm-hmm. Even though I may be old as Methuselah, I was not old enough to remember those things. Uh-huh. <laughs> when I was a young writer and had published a few stories, I taught for a couple of years, had a master's degree in literature, and I needed to get, you know, some the equivalent of a PhD, which is the MFA for writers in most mm-hmm. academic situations. Mm-hmm. So I returned to graduate school, and I remember most of the other writers who were in the graduate program were, were working on novels. And I went to see the director and said, I feel like a kid in short pants because everybody's writing a novel and I'm just writing stories. And he said, well, you're publishing them in good literary magazines. That'll all take care of itself. So I was working on a story at the time. And when I got to page 36 of that story, there was a kid in the backseat of a 1950 Studebaker champion. His parents were driving. And they rolled into this town of Blanco, Texas, where my dad had been born and raised, where I visited my grandmother. And I realized that in some way, that place was what I wanted to write about. And that became page one of that first novel, Blanco, that I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was in a small town in northwestern Ohio, and it was after midnight. I remember wishing I could call someone up to meet me for a celebratory drink, because by golly, I think I'm writing a novel. The best I could do was to walk by myself down the railroad tracks to the only place open that late, which was the Dairy Queens. <laughs> Instead of good whiskey, I got to celebrate with a chocolate malt, but I did jump on the railroad tracks and try to do the move where you click your heels in the air. And I shouted into the night, I'm writing a novel. <laughs> but I think the habit of writing is important. Flannery O'Connor said something like, needing to sit there at the typewriter every day at a particular time in case something worth writing down came along. So I try to write, you know, five or six days a week, generally in the mornings. I start mid-morning and write three to six hours, depending on how it's going. Uh There's a story a friend of mine told me once about spending days writing and being depressed. And I said, why? And he said, because all I had was minus three words. But in a funny way, if you've taken out the right three words to remove, maybe that was not a waste of time. That's exactly right. I think as that when we're writing, we're in a similar state uh, as we are when we're reading. And it's somewhere between being fully awake and being in a dream. Mm-hmm. So when I finally finished that first novel, I thought, great, I can now say I'm a novelist. I've got a book coming out and I'll write a second one. I must know how to do it because I've done it. (laughs) But the second novel made absolutely different demands. So writing the first novel hadn't taught me anything about how to write the second novel. 
Right. You learned how to write that book. And I hear a lot of people say, well, do you all I do is write short stories? You know, I don't know how to write a novel. Well, if you think about writing a novel, maybe one of your short stories will give you the idea. Maybe, maybe at this point in your life, you're not supposed to write a novel. Right. And I think the important thing for writers is to write. And I agree with you a hundred percent about the habits. I mean, your parents told you practice makes perfect right. and habits form a lifestyle and, and all that. And I, I think you're right. And I don't, for me, I write all different kinds of things. And if something isn't going right, I just move on to something else. It doesn't matter to me what I write. And I do that. Why don't you tell us what you have coming up? Because I know you have two different things in process right now. Why don't you tell us what's coming up? I've got two manuscripts. One is a novel that I actually completed right after I finished that massive novel, Tejano, that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. That novel was 1,800 manuscript pages in the first draft that mm -hmm. we cut to 950 for publication. Mm -hmm. And after that, I wanted to do something short. <laughs> I wanted yeah, I can understand that. Something I could finish in less than 10 years, you know. And, uh -huh. and I had in mind writing a literary thriller, a crime novel uh -huh. of some sort. So I read a bunch mm -hmm. of crime novels and I did several ride-alongs. I was teaching at the University of Tennessee at the time and the Knox County Sheriff's Department was kind enough to take me on various ride-alongs and I got intrigued with police procedure. This novel was generated by an experience my mother had. Our son at the time was about three or four years old and often stayed with her and during the night he was not staying with her but she had a, a burglar break in and stand over the foot of her bed and mm -hmm. she told him she had a gun and she tried to hit him with a lamp and fortunately he simply went downstairs and she heard him undoing the chain lock and exiting because he had come through mm -hmm. a window he had broken. Well, we all speculated what might have happened had our son been spending the night with her that night as he often did. So that mm -hmm. was the storyline for this literary thriller. Mm -hmm. Elderly woman who's got her granddaughter, I think the grandson to granddaughter, and a man breaks in and at least in the early draft, he kills the little girl and she doesn't know this until after he's left. Mm -hmm. And the police arrest someone that she's certain is, is not the perpetrator of the crime. Mm -hmm. So she sets out to track down the killer herself. And mm -hmm. I saw this as a way not only to write a, what I hoped would be a thrilling plot-driven story, but also to sort of empower an older woman as someone who's capable of dealing with mm -hmm. a situation like this, not just emotionally, but also actively, you know, catching the right person. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it was a fairly short manuscript, just under 400 pages, I guess, compared to the mm -hmm. one I had just finished. Yeah, everything's relative, right? right? <laughs> but when I re finally really got some distance from it and read it, I realized it wasn't thrilling enough and it wasn't really literary enough either. And by that, I mean that the writing wasn't the writing was careless at times and I wasn't satisfied with it. Mm -hmm. I just put it on the back shelf and wrote stories and wrote essays. Mm -hmm. And then I began another manuscript that I didn't finish. I wrote about a hundred pages of this one. And that crime thriller is one that's on the back burner. Mm -hmm. And then this other book mm -hmm. came along. My son came into my study one day. He was about 12, soon to be 13 and said, Dad, I just want you to know I'm not going to be the good son anymore. I said, what do you mean? And he said, not necessarily in this order. It's going to all be sex, drugs, and rock and roll. 
And so basically he wanted permission to smoke pot with some friend he had met. And I said, well, you know, I can't give you permission. You have to make your own decision about something like that, but that's going to be pretty boring later on because he had complained that his life was dull. And that when I got together with friends, we always had great stories to tell about our adventures. And I said, well, what do our adventures have in common? He said, well, weird people. <laughs> I said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, where, where do we meet those people? I mentioned to him the blue highway. and He didn't know what that uh-huh. meant. So I explained uh-huh. it. And he remembered that when I was 12, my dad, who was a traveling salesman, had asked me to go with him for a 10-day business trip. Uh-huh. And my mother had kind of worried about us, just the two of us, but you know, she relented and we went. And among the rules my dad let me break was that we had fried chicken for every meal for 10 days. <laughs> Whatever I wanted, he said I could have. And he also left me for 12 hours in a motel swimming pool while he went and made calls. I was a good swimmer uh-huh. and there was a lifeguard, but my mother didn't think that was quite adequate when we got back home. <laughs> For years, my son Wes had heard us laugh about the fried chicken trip, which is what uh-huh. we call that trip my dad and yeah. I took. So what I proposed to Wes, instead of him going and smoking pot right then and there, I had a little two-seater convertible. And I said, we could get in the car and see where the road takes us. And he said, and it would be like the fried chicken trip. And I said, what do you mean? He said, no rules. I could call all the shots. I said, as long as we're not breaking the law, endangering ourselves or anyone else. And yeah, he said, you mean like, I want to pull over here and go to a carnival. You'll do it. I want fried chicken or if I want to stay up all night or eat candy. And I said, you know, play it by ear, but generally, yes. So we took off the first day. We had the top down and a thunderstorm came along and I pulled over to pull the top up and my son shook his head. I said, all right. But we drove for 30 minutes. And I'll tell you, in August in uh, East Tennessee, it's very refreshing to drive with a rain shower. (laughs) And it quickly dried out. He rejected six motels. We got to Asheville, North Carolina, about 100 miles from Knoxville, where we had started. But it had taken us 400 miles on the odometer to get there because of the detours that he had (laughs) insisted on. He finally allowed me to rent a room, having turned down these other motels. And I said, what was wrong with the others? And he said, the beds didn't bounce well enough because when we had stayed in motels, his mother wouldn't let him bounce on the bed. So he said, I'm hungry. I want to go eat. And he said, can I pick where? And I said, as long as they serve scotch, because I need one drink after that drive. He said, well, his brother had taken him to a place called the Outback Steakhouse. I've never been there, but I've heard of it. If there's one handy, you know, we'll go there. We pulled out of the motel, kind of in a decline, pulled up the hill, and across the street was the Outback State House. So we drove across the street, went in. We were good to go. They did have scotch, so I could have my one drink. Thank goodness you could have your drink, yeah. He's sitting there holding the menu, grinning, and I said, what is it? And he turned the menu around. He said, I think this is a good sign for our trip. And on the menu, it said, Outback, no rules, just fun. (laughs) Isn't that neat? This book cuts back and forth from my memory of our trip together when he was 12, which Uh ended on the eve of his 13th birthday. His mother had insisted Uh 
that we'd be back home by the time he's 13. Mm-hmm. And the trip I took with my dad when I was about to turn 13, eating fried uh-huh. chicken. And I don't know if I can write it as memoir because obviously I don't have accurate memory of all the details of the fried chicken trip when I was only 12. And now it's been maybe 15 years or more since Wes and I took that trip. And I've got him to ask questions, you know, is this the way it happened? But he and I have talked about it and our memories don't coincide. No, of course not. So I don't know. I may have to borrow from Truman Capote and call it a nonfiction novel or, you know, or a fictionalized memoir. <laughs> I don't want the creative nonfiction police to arrest me for compressing time or making up dialogue, you know. But yeah, I think it's going to be fun to write it and see where it takes us. Yeah, I think it is too. Now you have a copy of your most recent book there. I do. I'd like you to hold that up because yeah. of the wonderful cover. Yeah, my wife Donnie is a painter, and she did a pastel painting that they use for the cover of the book. The book is called Late Night, Early Morning. And I tell people, please judge this book by the cover, (laughs) since (laughs) Donnie did it. This is a collection. It's really new and selected stories. So there's 22 stories, including stories from my first book and then others chronologically up to the most recent stories that I've written. Well, thanks so much, Alan. It's been great chatting with you. Folks, you can find Alan on his website at Alan. Is it alanwirefiction.com? Is that right? That's right, I think. <laughs> alanwirefiction.com. It, it's going to appear across the screen in the trailer. Okay. So we will be all set there. Thanks so much for visiting with me. Hope- it might be dot net. I'm not sure. <laughs> thanks again so much for visiting with me. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Linda. I enjoyed visiting with you.